The Picture of Dorian Gray Chapter 5 Mother, mother, I am so happy, whispered the girl, burying her face in the lap of the faded, tired-looking woman who was back turned to the shrill, intrusive light was sitting in the one armchair that their dingy sitting-room contained. I am so happy, she repeated. And you must be happy, too. Mrs. Vane winced and put her thin, bismuth-whitened hands on her daughter's head. Happy, she echoed. I am only happy, Sybil, when I see you act. You must not think of anything but your acting. Mr. Isaacs has been very good to us, and we owe him money. The girl looked up and pouted. Money, mother, she cried. What does money matter? Love is more than money. Mr. Isaacs has advanced us fifty pounds to pay off our debts and to get a proper outfit for James. You must not forget that, Sybil. Fifty pounds is a very large sum. Mr. Isaacs has been most considerate. He is not a gentleman, mother, and I hate the way he talks to me, said the girl, rising to her feet and going over to the window. I don't know how we could manage without him, answered the elder woman querulously. Sybil Vane tossed her head and laughed. We don't want him any more, mother. Prince Charming rules life for us now. Then she paused. A rose shook in her blood and shadowed her cheeks. Quick breath parted the petals of her lips. They trembled. Some southern wind of passion swept over her and stirred the dainty folds of her dress. I love him, she said simply. Foolish child, foolish child, was the parrot phrase flung in answer. The waving of crooked, false jeweled fingers gave grotesqueness to the words. The girl laughed again. The joy of a caged bird was in her voice. Her eyes caught the melody and echoed it in radiance then closed for a moment, as though to hide their secret. When they opened, the mist of a dream had passed across them. Thin-lipped wisdom spoke at her from the worn chair, hinted at prudence, quoted from that book of cowardice whose author apes the name of common sense. She did not listen. She was free in her prison of passion. Her prince, Prince Charming, was with her. She had called on memory to remake him. She had sent her soul to search for him, and it had brought him back. His kiss burned again upon her mouth. Her eyelids were warm with his breath. Then, wisdom altered its method, a 
and spoke of espial and discovery this young man might be rich if so marriage should be thought of against the shell of her ear broke the waves of worldly cunning the arrows of craft shot by her she saw the thin lips moving and smiled suddenly she felt the need to speak the wordy silence troubled her mother mother she cried why does he love me so much i know why i love him i love him because he is like what love himself should be but what does he see in me i am not worthy of him and yet why i cannot tell though i feel so much beneath him i don't feel humble i feel proud terribly proud mother did you love my father as i love prince charming the elder woman grew pale beneath the coarse powder that daubed her cheeks and her dry lips twitched with a spasm of pain sybil rushed to her flung her arms around her neck and kissed her forgive me mother i know it pains you to talk about our father but it only pains you because you loved him so much don't look so sad i am as happy today as you were twenty years ago oh let me be happy forever my child you are far too young to think of falling in love besides what do you know of this young man you don't even know his name the whole thing is most inconvenient and really when james is going away to australia and i have so much to think of i must say that you should have shown more consideration however as i said before if he is rich oh mother mother let me be happy mrs vane glanced at her and with one of those false theatrical gestures that so often become a mode of second nature to a stage player clasped her in her arms at this moment the door opened and a young lad with rough brown hair came into the room he was a thick-set figure and his hands and feet were large and somewhat clumsy in movement he was not so finely bred as his sister one would have hardly guessed the close relationship that existed between them mrs vane fixed her eyes on him and intensified her smile she mentally elevated her son to the dignity of an audience she felt sure that the tableau was interesting you might keep some of your kisses for me sybil i think said the lad with a good-natured grumble ah but you don't like being kissed jim she cried you are a dreadful old bear and she ran across the room and hugged him james vane looked into his sister's face with tenderness 
I want you to come out with me for a walk, Sybil. I don't suppose I shall ever see this horrid London again. I am sure I don't want to. My son, don't say such dreadful things, murmured Mrs. Vane, taking up a tawdry theatrical dress with a sigh and beginning to patch it. She felt a little disappointed that he had not joined the group. It would have increased the theatrical picturesqueness of the situation. Why not, mother? I mean it. You pain me, my son. I trust you will return from Australia in a position of affluence. I believe there is no society of any kind in the colonies. Nothing that I would call society. So when you have made your fortune, you must come back and assert yourself in London. Society, muttered the lad. I don't want to know anything about that. I should like to make some money and take you and Sybil off the stage. I hate it. Oh, Jim, said Sybil, laughing. How unkind of you. But are you really going for a walk with me? That will be nice. I was afraid you were going to say goodbye to some of your friends. To Tom Hardy, who gave you that hideous pipe. Or Ned Langton, who makes fun of you for smoking it. It is very sweet of you to let me have your last afternoon. Where shall we go? Let us go to the park. I am too shabby, he answered, frowning. Only swell people go to the park. Nonsense, Jim, she whispered, stroking the sleeve of his coat. He hesitated for a moment. Very well, he said at last. But don't be too long dressing. She danced out the door. One could hear her singing as she ran upstairs. Her little feet pattered overhead. He walked up and down the room two or three times. Then he turned to the still figure in the chair. Mother, are my things ready? He asked. Quite ready, James. She answered, keeping her eyes on her work. For some months past, she had felt ill at ease when she was alone with this rough, stern son of hers. Her shallow, secret nature was troubled when their eyes met. She used to wonder if he suspected anything. The silence, for he made no other observation, became intolerable to her. She began to complain. Women defend themselves by attacking, just as they attack by sudden and strange surrenders. I hope you will be contented, James, with your seafaring life, she said. You must remember that it is your own choice. You might have entered a solicitor's office. Solicitors are a very respectable class, and in the country, often dine with the best families. I hate offices, and I hate clerks, he replied. You are quite right. I have chosen my own life. 
All I say is, watch over Sybil. Don't let her come to any harm. Mother, you must watch over her. James, you really talk very strangely. Of course I watch over Sybil. I hear a gentleman comes every night to the theater and goes behind to talk to her. Is that right? What about that? You are speaking about things you don't understand, James. In the profession, we are accustomed to receive a great deal of most gratifying attention. I myself used to receive many bouquets at one time. That was when acting was really understood. As for Sybil, I do not know at present whether her attachment is serious or not. But there is no doubt that the young man in question is a perfect gentleman. He is always most polite to me. Besides, he has the appearance of being rich. The flowers he sends are lovely. You don't know his name, though, said the lad harshly. No, answered his mother with a placid expression in her face. He has not yet revealed his real name. I think it is quite romantic of him. He is probably a member of the aristocracy. James Vane bit his lip. Watch over Sybil, mother, he cried. Watch over her. My son, you distress me very much. Sybil is always under my special care. Of course, if this gentleman is wealthy, there is no reason why she should not contract an alliance with him. I trust he is one of the aristocracy. He has all the appearance of it, I must say. It might be a most brilliant marriage for Sybil. They would make a charming couple. His good looks are really quite remarkable. Everybody notices them. The lad muttered something to himself and drummed on the window pane with his coarse fingers. He had just turned round to say something when the door opened and Sybil ran in. How serious you both are, she cried. What is the matter? Nothing, he answered. I suppose one must be serious sometimes. Goodbye, mother. I will have my dinner at five o'clock. Everything is packed except my shirts, so you need not trouble. Goodbye, my son. She answered with a bow of strained stateliness. She was extremely annoyed at the tone he had adopted with her, and there was something in his look that had made her feel afraid. Kiss me, mother, said the girl. Her flower-like lips touched the withered cheek and warmed its frost. My child, my child, cried Mrs. Fane, looking up to the ceiling in search of an imaginary gallery. 
Come, Sybil, said her brother impatiently. He hated his mother's affectations. They went out into the flickering, wind-blown sunlight and strolled down the dreary Euston Road. The passers-by glanced in wonder at the sullen, heavy youth who, in coarse, ill-fitting clothes, was in the company of such a graceful, refined-looking girl. He was like a common gardener, walking with a rose. Jim frowned from time to time when he caught the inquisitive glance of some stranger. He had that dislike of being stared at, which comes on geniuses late in life, and never leaves the commonplace. Sybil, however, was quite unconscious of the effect she was producing. Her love was trembling in laughter on her lips. She was thinking of Prince Charming, and that she might think of him all the more. She did not talk of him, but prattled on about the ship in which Jim was going to sail, about the gold he was certain to find, about the wonderful heiress whose life he was to save from the wicked, red-shirted bushrangers. Poor, he was not to remain a sailor or a supercargo, or whatever he was going to be. Oh, no, a sailor's existence was dreadful. Fancy being cooped up in a horrid ship, with the hoarse, hump-backed waves trying to get in, and a black wind blowing the masts down and tearing the sails into long, screaming ribbons. He was to leave the vessel at Melbourne, bid a polite goodbye to the captain, and go off at once to the gold fields. Before a week was over, he was to come across a large nugget of pure gold, the largest nugget that had ever been discovered, and bring it down to the coast in a wagon guarded by six mounted policemen. The bushrangers were to attack them three times and be defeated with immense slaughter. Or, no, he was not to go to the gold fields at all. They were horrid places where men got intoxicated and shot each other in bar rooms and used bad language. He was to be a nice sheep farmer. And one evening, as he was riding home, he was to see the beautiful heiress being carried off by a robber on a black horse, and give chase, and rescue her. Of course, she would fall in love with him, and he with her, and they would get married, and come home, and live in an immense house in London. Yes, there were delightful things in store for him. But... He must be very good, and not lose his temper, or spend his money foolishly. She was only a year older than he was, but she knew so much more of life. He must be sure, also, to write to her by every mail, and to say his prayers each night before he went to sleep. God was very good, and would watch over him. She would pray for him, too, and in a few years 
he would come back quite rich and happy. The lad listened sulkily to her and made no answer. He was heartsick at leaving home. Yet it was not this alone that made him gloomy and morose. Inexperienced though he was, he still had a strong sense of the danger of Sybil's position. This young dandy who was making love to her could mean her no good. He was a gentleman, and he hated him for that. Hated him through some curious race instinct for which he could not account, and which, for that reason, was all the more dominant within him. He was conscious also of the shallowness and vanity of his mother's nature, and in that saw infinite peril for Sybil and Sybil's happiness. Children begin by loving their parents. As they grow older, they judge them. Sometimes they forgive them. His mother. He had something on his mind to ask of her, something that he had brooded on for many months of silence. A chance phrase that he had heard at the theater, a whispered sneer that had reached his ears one night as he waited at the stage door, had set loose a train of horrible thoughts. He remembered it as if it had been the lash of a hunting crop across his face. His brows knit together in a wedge-like furrow, and with a twitch of pain he bit his underlip. You are not listening to a word I am saying, Jim, cried Sybil, and I am making the most delightful plans for your future. Do say something. What do you want me to say? Oh, that you will be a good boy and not forget us, she answered, smiling at him. He shrugged his shoulders. You are more likely to forget me than I am to forget you, Sybil. She flushed. What do you mean, Jim? She asked. You have a new friend, I hear. Who is he? Why have you not told me about him? He means you no good. Stop, Jim, she exclaimed. You must not say anything against him. I love him. Why, you don't even know his name, answered the lad. Who is he? I have a right to know. He is called Prince Charming. Don't you like the name? Oh, you silly boy. You should never forget it. If only you saw him, you would think him the most wonderful person in the world. Some day you will meet him. When you come back from Australia, you will like him so much. Everybody likes him. And I love him. I wish you could come to the theater tonight. He is going to be there, and I am to play Juliet. Oh... How I shall play it. 
fancy, Jim, to be in love and play Juliet, to have him sitting there, to play for his delight. I am afraid I may frighten the company, frighten or enthrall them. To be in love is to surpass oneself. Poor dreadful Mr. Isaacs will be shouting genius to his loafers at the bar. He has preached me as a dogma. Tonight he will announce me as a revelation. I feel it. And it is all his, his only. Prince Charming, my wonderful lover, my god of graces. But I am poor beside him. Poor, what does that matter? When poverty creeps in at the door, love flies in through the window. Our proverbs want rewriting. They were made in winter, and it is summer now. Springtime for me, I think. A very dance of blossoms in blue skies. He is a gentleman, said the lad sullenly. A prince, she cried musically. What more do you want? He wants to enslave you. I shudder at the thought of being free. I want you to beware of him. To see him is to worship him. To know him is to trust him. Sybil, you are mad about him. She laughed and took his arm. You dear old Jim. You talk as if you were a hundred. Some day you will be in love yourself. Then you will know what it is. Don't look so sulky. Surely you should be glad to think that, though you are going away, you leave me happier than I have ever been before. Life has been hard for us both. Terribly hard and difficult. But it will be different now. You are going to a new world, and I have found one. Here are two chairs. Let us sit down and see the smart people go by. They took their seats amidst a crowd of watchers. The tulip beds across the road flamed like throbbing rings of fire. A white dust, tremulous cloud of orris root it seemed, hung in the panting air. The brightly colored parasols danced and dipped like monstrous butterflies. She made her brother talk of himself, his hopes, his prospects. He spoke slowly and with effort. They passed words to each other as players at a game pass counters. Sybil felt oppressed. She could not communicate her joy. A faint smile curving that sullen mouth was all the echo she could win. After some time, she became silent. Suddenly, she caught a glimpse of golden hair and laughing lips, and in an open carriage with two ladies. Dorian Gray 
drove past. She started to her feet. There he is, she cried. Who? said Jim Vane. Prince Charming, she answered, looking after the Victoria. He jumped up and seized her roughly by the arm. Show him to me. Which is he? Point him out. I must see him, he exclaimed. But at that moment, the Duke of Berwick's foreign hand came between, and when it had left the space clear, the carriage had swept out of the park. He is gone, murmured Sybil sadly. I wish you had seen him. I wish I had, for as sure as there is a god in heaven, if he ever does you any wrong, I shall kill him. She looked at him in horror. He repeated his words. They cut the air like a dagger. The people round began to gape. The lady standing close to her tittered. Come away, Jim, come away, she whispered. He followed her doggedly as she passed through the crowd. He felt glad at what he had said. When they reached the Achilles statue, she turned round. There was pity in her eyes that became laughter on her lips. She shook her head at him. You are foolish, Jim. Utterly foolish. A bad-tempered boy, that is all. How can you say such horrible things? You don't know what you are talking about. You are simply jealous and unkind. Oh, I wish you would fall in love. Love makes people good. And what you said was wicked. I am sixteen, he answered, and I know what I am about. Mother is no help to you. She doesn't understand how to look after you. I wish now that I was not going to Australia at all. I have a great mind to chuck the whole thing up. I would, if my articles hadn't been signed. Oh, don't be so serious, Jim. You are like one of the heroes of those silly melodramas Mother used to be so fond of acting in. I am not going to quarrel with you. I have seen him. And, oh, to see him is perfect happiness. We won't quarrel. I know he would never harm anyone I love. Would you? Not as long as you love him, I suppose, was the sullen answer. I shall love him forever, she cried. And he? Forever, too. He had better. She shrank from him. Then she laughed and put her hand on his arm. He was merely a boy. At the marble arch, they hailed an omnibus, which left them close to their shabby home in the Euston Road. It was after five o'clock, and Sybil had to lie down for a couple of hours before acting. Jim insisted that she do so. He said that he would sooner part with her when her mother was not present. 
she would be sure to make a scene, and he detested scenes of every kind. In Sybil's own room they parted. There was a jealousy in the lad's heart and a fierce, murderous hatred of the stranger who, as it seemed to him, had come between them. Yet, when her arms were flung round his neck and her fingers strayed through his hair, he softened and kissed her with real affection. There were tears in his eyes as he went downstairs. His mother was waiting for him below. She grumbled at his unpunctuality as he entered. He made no answer, but sat down to his meager meal. The flies buzzed round the table and crawled over the stained cloth. Through the rumble of omnibuses and the clatter of street cabs, he could hear the droning voice devouring each minute that was left to him. After some time, he thrust away his plate and put his head in his hands. He felt that he had a right to know. It should have been told to him before, if it was, as he suspected. Leaden with fear, his mother watched him. Words dropped mechanically from her lips. A tattered lace handkerchief twitched in her fingers. When the clock struck six, he got up and went to the door. Then he turned back and looked at her. Their eyes met. In hers, he saw a wild appeal for mercy. It enraged him. Mother, I have something to ask you, he said. Her eyes wandered vaguely about the room. She made no answer. Tell me the truth. I have a right to know. Were you married to my father? She heaved a deep sigh. It was a sigh of relief. The terrible moment. The moment that night and day for weeks and months she had dreaded. had come at last. And yet she felt no terror. Indeed, in some measure, it was a disappointment to her. The vulgar directness of the question called for a direct answer. The situation had not been gradually led up to. It was crude. It reminded her of a bad rehearsal. No, she answered, wondering at the harsh simplicity of life. My father was a scoundrel then cried the lad, clenching his fists. She shook her head. I knew he was not free. We loved each other very much. If he had lived, he would have made provision for us. Don't speak against him, my son. He was your father and a gentleman. Indeed, he was highly connected. An oath broke from his lips. I don't care for myself, he exclaimed. 
don't let Sybil. It is a gentleman, isn't it, who is in love with her, or says he is highly connected, too, I suppose. For a moment, a hideous sense of humiliation came over the woman. Her head drooped. She wiped her eyes with shaking hands. Sybil has a mother, she murmured. I have none. The lad was touched. He went towards her, and stooping down, he kissed her. I am sorry if I have pained you by asking about my father, he said, but I could not help it. I must go now. Goodbye. Don't forget that you will have only one child now to look after. And believe me that if this man wrongs my sister, I will find out who he is, track him down, and kill him like a dog. I swear it. The exaggerated folly of the threat, the passionate gesture that accompanied it, the mad, melodramatic words made life seem more vivid to her. She was familiar with the atmosphere. She breathed more freely, and for the first time in many months, she really admired her son. She would have liked to have continued the scene on the same emotional scale, but he cut her short. Trunks had to be carried down, and mufflers looked for. The lodging-house drudge bustled in and out. There was the bargaining with the cabman. The moment was lost in vulgar details. It was with a renewed feeling of disappointment that she waved the tattered lace handkerchief from the window as her son drove away. She was conscious that a great opportunity had been wasted. She consoled herself by telling Sybil how desolate she felt her life would be now that she had only one child to look after. She remembered the phrase. It had pleased her. Of the threat, she said nothing. It was vividly and dramatically expressed. She felt that they would all laugh at it some day. Chapter 6 I suppose you have heard the news, Basil, said Lord Henry that evening, as Halward was shown into a little private room at the Bristol, where dinner had been laid for three. No hurry, answered the artist, giving his hat and coat to the bowing waiter. What is it? Nothing about politics, I hope. They don't interest me. There is hardly a single person in the House of Commons worth painting, though many of them would be the better for a little whitewashing. Dorian Gray is engaged to be married, said Lord Henry, watching him as he spoke. Halward started, and then frowned. Dorian engaged to be married, he cried. Impossible. It is perfectly true, 
To whom? To some little actress or other. I can't believe it. Dorian is far too sensible. Dorian is far too wise not to do foolish things now and then, my dear Basil. Marriage is hardly a thing one can do now and then, Harry. Except in America, rejoined Lord Henry languidly. But I didn't say he was married. I said he was engaged to be married. There is a great difference. I have a distinct remembrance of being married, but I have no recollection at all of being engaged. I am inclined to think that I never was engaged. But think of Dorian's birth and position and wealth. It would be absurd for him to marry so much beneath him. If you want to make him marry this girl, tell him that, Basil. He is sure to do it then. Whenever a man does a thoroughly stupid thing, it is always from the noblest motives. I hope the girl is good, Harry. I don't want to see Dorian tied to some vile creature who might degrade his nature and ruin his intellect. No, she is better than good. She is beautiful, murmured Lord Henry, sipping a glass of vermouth and orange bitters. Dorian says she is beautiful, and he is not often wrong about things of that kind. Your portrait of him has quickened his appreciation of the personal appearance of other people. It has had that excellent effect amongst others. We are to see her tonight, if that boy doesn't forget his appointment. Are you serious? Quite serious, Basil. I should be miserable if I thought I should ever be more serious than I am at the present moment. But do you approve of it, Harry? asked the painter, walking up and down the room and biting his lip. You can't approve of it, possibly. It is some silly infatuation. I never approve, or disapprove, of anything now. It is an absurd attitude to take towards life. We are not sent into the world to air our moral prejudices. I never take any notice of what common people say, and I never interfere with what charming people do. If a personality fascinates me, whatever mode of expression that personality selects is absolutely delightful to me. Dorian Gray falls in love with a beautiful girl who acts Juliet and proposes to marry her. Why not? If he wedded Messalina, he would be none less interesting. You know I am not a champion of marriage. The real drawback to marriage is that it makes one unselfish, and unselfish people 
are colorless. They lack individuality. Still, there are certain temperaments that marriage makes more complex. They retain their egotism and add to it many other egos. They are forced to have more than one life. They become more highly organized. And to be highly organized is, I should fancy, the object of man's existence. Besides, every experience is of value, and, whatever one may say against marriage, it is certainly an experience. I hope that Dorian Gray will make this girl his wife, passionately adore her for six months, and then suddenly become fascinated by someone else. He would be a wonderful study. You don't mean a single word of all that, Harry. You know you don't. If Dorian Gray's life were spoiled, no one would be sorrier than yourself. You are much better than you pretend to be. Lord Henry laughed. The reason we all like to think so well of others is that we are all afraid for ourselves. The basis of optimism is sheer terror. We think that we are generous because we credit our neighbor with the possession of those virtues that are likely to be a benefit to us. We praise the banker that we may overdraw our account and find good qualities in the highwayman in the hope that he may spare our pockets. I mean everything that I have said. I have the greatest contempt for optimism. As for a spoiled life, <laughs> no life is spoiled but one whose growth is arrested. If you want to mar a nature, you have merely to reform it. As for marriage, of course that would be silly, but there are other and more interesting bonds between men and women. I will certainly encourage them. They have the charm of being fashionable. But here is Dorian himself. He will tell you more than I can. My dear Harry, my dear Basil, you must both congratulate me, said the lad, throwing off his evening cape with its satin-lined wings and shaking each of his friends by the hand in turn. I have never been so happy. Of course, it is sudden. All really delightful things are, and yet... It seems to me to be the one thing I have been looking for all my life. He was flushed with excitement and pleasure and looked extraordinarily handsome. I hope you will always be very happy, Dorian, said Howard. But I don't quite forgive you for not having let me know of your engagement. You let Harry know. And I don't forgive you 
for being late for dinner, broke in Lord Henry, putting his hand on the lad's shoulder and smiling as he spoke. Come, let us sit down and try what the new chef here is like, and then you will tell us how it all came about. There really is not much to tell, cried Dorian as they took their seats at the small round table. What happened was simply this. After I left you yesterday evening, Harry, I dressed, had some dinner at that little Italian restaurant in Rupert Street you introduced me to, and went down at eight o'clock to the theatre. Sybil was playing Rosalind. Of course the scenery was dreadful and the Orlando absurd, but Sybil, you should have seen her. When she came on in her boy's clothes, she was perfectly wonderful. She wore a moss-colored velvet jerkin with cinnamon sleeves, slim brown cross-gartered hose, a dainty little green cap with a hawk's feather caught in a jewel, and a hooded cloak lined with dull red. She had never seemed to me more exquisite. She had all the delicate grace of that Tanagra figurine that you have in your studio, Basil. Her hair clustered around her face like dark leaves round a pale rose. As for her acting, well, you shall see her tonight. She is simply a born artist. I sat in the dingy box absolutely enthralled. I forgot that I was in London and in the nineteenth century. I was away with my love in a forest that no man had ever seen. After the performance was over, I went behind and spoke to her. As we were sitting together, suddenly there came into her eyes a look that I had never seen before. My lips moved towards hers. We kissed each other. I can't describe to you what I felt at that moment. It seemed to me that all my life had been narrowed to one perfect point of rose-colored joy. She trembled all over and shook like a white narcissus. Then she flung herself on her knees and kissed my hands. I feel I should not tell you this, but I can't help it. Of course, our engagement is a dead secret. She has not even told her own mother. I don't know what my guardians will say. Lord Radley is sure to be furious. I don't care. 
I shall be of age in less than a year, and then I can do what I like. And to find my wife in Shakespeare's plays, lips that Shakespeare taught to speak, have whispered their secret in my ear. I have had the arms of Rosalind around me and kissed Juliet on the mouth. Yes, Dorian. I suppose you were right, said Halward, slowly. Have you seen her today? asked Lord Henry. Dorian Gray shook his head. I left her in the forest of Arden. I shall find her in an orchard in Verona. Lord Henry sipped his champagne in a meditative manner. At what particular point did you mention the word marriage, Dorian? And what did she say in answer? Perhaps you forgot all about it? My dear Harry, I did not treat it as a business transaction, and I did not make any formal proposal. I told her that I loved her, and she said she was not worthy to be my wife. <laughs> not worthy? Why, the whole world is nothing to me compared with her. Women are wonderfully practical, murmured Lord Henry. Much more practical than we are. In situations of that kind, we often forget to say anything about marriage. And they always remind us. Halward laid his hand upon his arm. Don't hurry. You have annoyed Dorian. He is not like other men. He would never bring misery upon anyone. His nature is too fine for that. Lord Henry looked across the table. Dorian is never annoyed with me. He answered. I asked the question for the best reason possible. For the only reason, indeed, that excuses one for asking any question. Simple curiosity. I have a theory that it is always the women who propose to us, and not we who propose to the women. Except, of course, in middle-class life. But then the middle classes are not modern. Dorian Gray laughed and tossed his head. You are quite incorrigible, Harry. But I don't mind. It is impossible to be angry with you. When you see Sybil Vane, you will feel the man who could wrong her would be a beast. A beast without a heart. I cannot understand how anyone can wish to shame the thing he loves. I love Sybil Vane. I want to place her on a pedestal of gold and to see the world worship the woman. Who is mine? What is marriage? An irrevocable vow. 
you mock at it for that. That don't mock. It is an irrevocable vow that I want to take. Her trust makes me faithful. Her belief makes me good. When I am with her, I regret all that you have taught me. I become different from what you have known me to be. I am changed, and the mere touch of Sybil Vane's hand makes me forget you and all your wrong, fascinating, poisonous, delightful theories. And those are? asked Lord Henry, helping himself to some salad. Oh, your theories about life, your theories about love, your theories about pleasure. All your theories, in fact, Harry. Pleasure is the only thing worth having a theory about. He answered in his slow, melodious voice. But I am afraid I cannot claim my theory as my own. It belongs to nature, not to me. Pleasure is nature's test, a sign of approval. When we are happy, we are always good. But when we are good, we are not always happy. Ah, but what do you mean by good? cried Basil Howard. Yes, echoed Dorian, leaning back in his chair and looking at Lord Henry over the heavy clusters of purple-lipped irises that stood in the center of the table. What do you mean by good, Harry? To be good is to be in harmony with oneself, he replied, touching the thin stem of his glass with his pale, fine-pointed fingers. Discord is to be forced to be in harmony with others. One's own life, that is the important thing. As for the lives of one's neighbors, if one wishes to be a prig or a puritan, one can flaunt one's moral views about them. But they are not one's concern. Besides, individualism has really the higher aim. Modern morality consists in accepting the standard of one's age. I consider that for any man of culture to accept the standard of his age is a form of the grossest immorality. But surely, if one lives merely for oneself, Harry, one pays a terrible price for doing so, suggested the painter. Yes, we are overcharged for everything nowadays. I should fancy that the real tragedy of the poor is that they can afford nothing but self-denial. Beautiful sins, like beautiful things, are the privilege of the rich. One has to pay in other ways but money. What sorts of ways, Basil? Oh, I should fancy in remorse, in suffering, 
in dwell in the consciousness of degradation. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. My dear fellow, medieval art is charming, but medieval emotions are out of date. One can use them in fiction, of course, but then the only things that one can use in fiction are the things that one has ceased to use in fact. Believe me, no civilized man ever regrets a pleasure, and no uncivilized man ever knows what a pleasure is. I know what pleasure is, cried Dorian Gray. It is to adore someone. That is certainly better than being adored, he answered, toying with some fruits. Being adored is a nuisance. Women treat us just as humanity treats its gods. They worship us, and are always bothering us to do something for them. I should have said that whatever they ask for, they had first given to us, murmured the lad gravely. They create love in our natures. They have a right to demand it back. That is quite true, Dorian, cried Howard. Nothing is ever quite true, said Lord Henry. This is, interrupted Dorian. You must admit, Harry, that women give to men the very gold of their lives. Possibly, he sighed. But they invariably want it back in such very small change. That is the worry. Women, as some witty Frenchman once put it, inspire us with the desire to do masterpieces and always prevent us from carrying them out. Harry, you are dreadful. I don't know why I like you so much. You will always like me, Dorian, he replied. Will you have some coffee, you fellows? Waiter, bring coffee and fine champagne. And some cigarettes. No, don't mind the cigarettes. I have some. Basil, I can't allow you to smoke cigars. You must have a cigarette. A cigarette is the perfect type of a perfect pleasure. It is exquisite, and it leaves one unsatisfied. What more can one want? Yes, Dorian, you will always be fond of me. I represent to you all the sins you have never had the courage to commit. What nonsense you talk, Harry, cried the lad, taking a light from a fire-breathing silver dragon that the waiter had placed on the table. Let us go down to the theatre. When Sybil comes on the stage, you will have a new ideal of life. She will represent to you something that you have never known. 
I have known everything, said Lord Henry with a tired look in his eyes. But I am always ready for a new emotion. I am afraid, however, that for me, at any rate, there is no such thing. Still, your wonderful girl may thrill me. I love acting. It is so much more real than life. Let us go. Dorian, you will come with me. I am so sorry, Basil, but there is only room for two in the brougham. You must follow us in a hansom. They got up and put on their coats, sipping their coffee standing. The painter was silent and preoccupied. There was a gloom over him. He could not bear this marriage, and yet... It seemed to him to be better than many other things that might have happened. After a few minutes, they all passed downstairs. He drove off by himself, as had been arranged, and watched the flashing lights of the little broom in front of him. A strange sense of loss came over him. He felt that Dorian Gray would never again be to him all that he had been in the past. Life had come between them. His eyes darkened and the crowded, flaring streets became blurred to his eyes. When the cab drew up at the theater, it seemed to him that he had grown years older. Chapter 7 For some reason or other, the house was crowded that night, and the fat Jew manager who met them at the door was beaming from ear to ear with an oily, tremulous smile. He escorted them to their box with a sort of pompous humility, waving his fat, jeweled hands and talking at the top of his voice. Dorian Gray loathed him more than ever. He felt as if he had come to look for Miranda and had been met by Caliban. Lord Henry, upon the other hand, rather liked him. At least, he declared he did and insisted on shaking him by the hand and assuring him that he was proud to meet a man who had discovered a real genius and gone bankrupt over a poet. Hallward amused himself with watching the faces in the pit. The heat was terribly oppressive and the huge sunlight flamed like a monstrous dahlia with petals of yellow fire. The youths in the gallery had taken off their coats and waistcoats and hung them over the side. They talked to each other across the theatre, and shared their oranges with the tawdry girls who sat beside them. Some women were laughing in the pit. Their voices were horribly shrill and discordant. The sound of the popping of corks came from the bar. What a place to find one's divinity in, 
said Lord Henry. Yes, answered Dorian Gray. It was here I found her, and she is divine beyond all living things. When she acts, you will forget everything. These common, rough people with their coarse faces and brutal gestures become quite different when she is on the stage. They sit silently and watch her. They weep and laugh as she wills them to do. She makes them as responsive as a violin. She spiritualizes them, and one feels that they are of the same flesh and blood as oneself. The same flesh and blood as oneself? Oh, oh I hope not, exclaimed Lord Henry, who was scanning the occupants of the gallery through his opera glass. Don't pay any attention to him, Dorian, said the painter. I understand what you mean, and I believe in this girl. Anyone you love must be marvelous, and any girl that has the effect you describe must be fine and noble. To spiritualize one's age, that is something worth doing. If this girl can give a soul to those who have lived without one, if she can create the sense of beauty in people whose lives have been sordid and ugly, if she can strip them of their selfishness and lend them tears for sorrows that are not their own, she is worthy of all your adoration worthy of the adoration of the world. This marriage is quite right. I did not think so at first, but I admit it now. The gods made Sybil Vane for you. Without her, you would have been incomplete. Thanks, Basil, answered Dorian Gray, pressing his hand. I knew that you would understand me. Harry is so cynical. He terrifies me. But here is the orchestra. It is quite dreadful, but it only lasts for about five minutes. Then the curtain rises, and you will see the girl to whom I am going to give all my life, to whom I have given everything that is good in me. A quarter of an hour afterwards, amidst an extraordinary turmoil of applause, Sybil Vane stepped onto the stage. Yes, she was certainly lovely to look at. One of the loveliest creatures, Lord Henry thought, that he had ever seen. There was something of the fawn in her shy grace and startled eyes. A faint blush, like the shadow of a rose in a mirror of silver, came to her cheeks as she glanced at the crowded, enthusiastic house. She stepped back a few paces, and her lips seemed to tremble. 
Basil Hallward leaped to his feet and began to applaud. Motionless, and as one in a dream, sat a Dorian Gray gazing at her. Lord Henry peered through his glasses, murmuring, Charming, charming. The scene was the hall of Capulet's house, and Romeo, in his pilgrim's dress, had entered with Mercutio and his other friends. The band, such as it was, struck up a few bars of music, and the dance began. Through the crowd of ungainly, shabbily-dressed actors, Sybil Vane moved like a creature from a finer world. Her body swayed while she danced, as a plant sways in the water. The curves of her throat were the curves of a white lily. Her hands seemed to be made of cool ivory. Yet she was curiously listless. She showed no sign of joy when her eyes rested on Romeo. The few words she had to speak. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much. Which mannerly devotion shows in this? For saints of hands the pilgrim's hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. With the brief dialogue that follows, were spoken in a thoroughly artificial manner. The voice was exquisite, but from the point of view of tone, it was absolutely false. It was wrong in color. It took away all the life from the verse. It made the passion unreal. Dorian Gray grew pale as he watched her. He was puzzled and anxious. Neither of his friends dared to say anything to him. She seemed to them to be absolutely incompetent. They were horribly disappointed. Yet, they felt that the true test of any Juliet is the balcony scene of the second act. They waited for that. If she failed there, there was nothing in her. She looked charming as she came out in the moonlight. That could not be denied. But the staginess of her acting was unbearable and grew worse as she went on. Her gestures became absurdly artificial. She overemphasized everything that she had to say. The beautiful passage. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush bepaint my cheek. For that which thou hast heard me speak to-night was declaimed with the painful precision of a schoolgirl who has been taught to recite by some second-rate professor of elocution. When she leaned over the balcony and came to those wonderful lines, Although I joy in thee, 
I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning which doth cease to be ere one can say it lightens, sweet good night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. She spoke the words as though they conveyed no meaning to her. It was not nervousness. Indeed, so far from being nervous, she was absolutely self-contained. It was simply bad art. She was a complete failure. Even the common, uneducated audience of the pit and gallery lost their interest in the play. They got restless and began to talk loudly and to whistle. The Jew manager, who was standing at the back of the dress circle, stamped and swore with rage. The only person unmoved was the girl herself. When the second act was over, there came a storm of hisses, and Lord Henry got up from his chair and put on his coat. She is quite beautiful, Dorian, he said. But she can't act. Let us go. I am going to see the play through, answered the lad in a hard, bitter voice. I am awfully sorry that I have made you waste an evening, Harry. I apologize to you both. My dear Dorian, I should think Miss Vane was ill, interrupted Hallward. We will come another night. I wish she were ill, he rejoined. But she seems to me to be simply callous and cold. She has entirely altered. Last night she was a great artist. This evening she is merely a commonplace mediocre actress. Don't talk like that about anyone you love, Dorian. Love is a more wonderful thing than art. They are both simply forms of imitation, remarked Lord Henry. But do let us go, Dorian. You must not stay here any longer. It is not good for one's morals to see bad acting. Besides, I don't suppose you will want your wife to act. So, what does it matter if she plays Juliet like a wooden doll? She is very lovely, and if she knows as little about life as she does about acting, she will be a delightful experience. There are only two kinds of people who are really fascinating. People who know absolutely everything, and people who know absolutely nothing. Good heavens, my dear boy, don't look so tragic. The secret of remaining young is never to have an emotion that is unbecoming. Come to the club with Basil and myself. We will smoke cigarettes and drink to the beauty of Sybil Vane. She is beautiful. What more can you want? Go away, Harry, cried the lad. I want to be alone. Basil, 
You must go. <sighs> Can't you see that my heart is breaking? The hot tears came to his eyes, his lips trembled, and rushing to the back of the box, he leaned up against the wall, hiding his face in his hands. Let us go, Basil, said Lord Henry, with a strange tenderness in his voice, and the two young men passed out together. A few moments afterward, the footlights flared up, and the curtain rose on the third act. Dorian Gray went back to his seat. He looked pale and proud and indifferent. The play dragged on and seemed interminable. Half of the audience went out, tramping in heavy boots and laughing. The whole thing was a fiasco. The last act was played to almost empty benches. The curtain went down on a titter and some groans. As soon as it was over, Dorian Gray rushed behind the scenes into the green room. The girl was standing there alone with a look of triumph on her face. Her eyes were lit with an exquisite fire. There was a radiance about her. Her parted lips were smiling over some secret of their own. When he entered, she looked at him and an expression of infinite joy came over her. How badly I acted tonight, Dorian, she cried. Horribly. He answered, gazing at her in amazement. Horribly. It was dreadful. Are you ill? You have no idea what it was. You have no idea what I suffered. The girl smiled. Dorian. She answered, lingering over his name with a long, drawn-out music in her voice as though it were sweeter than honey to the red petals of her mouth. Dorian, you should have understood. But you understand now, don't you? Understand what? He asked angrily. Why I was so bad tonight. Why I shall always be bad. Why I shall never act well again. He shrugged his shoulders. You are ill, I suppose. When you are ill, you shouldn't act. You make yourself ridiculous. My friends are bored. I was bored. She seemed not to listen to him. She was transfigured with joy. An ecstasy of happiness dominated her. Dorian, Dorian, she cried. Before I knew you, acting was the one reality of my life. It was only in the theater that I lived. I thought that it was all true. I was Rosalind one night and Portia the other. The joy of Beatrice was my joy, 
and the sorrows of Cordelia were mine also. I believed in everything. The common people who acted with me seemed to me to be godlike. The painted scenes were my world. I knew nothing but shadows, and I thought them real. You came, oh my beautiful love, and you freed my soul from prison. You taught me what reality really is. Tonight, for the first time in my life, I saw through the hollowness, the sham, the silliness of the empty pageant in which I had always played. Tonight, for the first time, I became conscious that the Romeo was hideous and old and painted, that the moonlight in the orchard was false, that the scenery was vulgar, and that the words I had to speak were unreal, were not my words, were not what I wanted to say. You had brought me something higher, something of which all art is but a reflection. You had made me understand what love really is. My love, my love, Prince Charming, Prince of Life, I have grown sick of shadows. You are more to me than all art can be. What have I to do with the puppets of a play? When I came on tonight, I could not understand how it was that everything had gone from me. I thought I was going to be wonderful. I found that I could do nothing. Suddenly it dawned on my soul what it all meant. The knowledge was exquisite to me. I heard them hissing, and I smiled. What could they know of love such as ours? Take me away, Dorian. Take me away with you, where we can be quite alone. I hate the stage. I might mimic a passion that I do not feel, but I cannot mimic one that burns me like fire. Oh, Dorian, Dorian, you understand now what it signifies? Even if I could do it, it would be profanation for me to play at being in love. You have made me see that. He flung himself down on the sofa and turned away his face. You have killed my love, he muttered. She looked at him in wonder and laughed. He made no answer. She came across to him and with her little fingers stroked his hair. She knelt down and pressed his hands to her lips. He drew them away, and a shudder ran through him. Then he leaped up and went to the door. Yes, he cried. You have killed my love. You used to stir my imagination. Now you don't even stir my curiosity. You simply produce no effect. I loved you because you were marvelous, because you had genius and intellect, because you realized the dreams of great poets and gave shape and substance to the shadows of art. You have thrown it all away. You are shallow and stupid. My God, 
How mad I was to love you. What a fool I have been. You are nothing to me now. I will never see you again. I will never think of you. I will never mention your name. You don't know what you were to me once. Why? Once? Oh, I can't bear to think of it. I wish I had never laid eyes upon you. You have spoiled the romance of my life. How little you can know of love if you say it mars your art. Without your art, you are nothing. I would have made you famous, splendid, magnificent. The world would have worshipped you, and you would have borne my name. What are you now? A third-rate actress with a pretty face. The girl grew white and trembled. She clenched her hands together, and her voice seemed to catch in her throat. You are not serious, Dorian, she murmured. You are acting. Acting? I leave that to you. You do it so well, he answered bitterly. She rose from her knees, and with a piteous expression of pain in her face, came across the room to him. She put her hand upon his arm and looked into his eyes. He thrust her back. Don't touch me, he cried. A low moan broke from her, and she flung herself at his feet and lay there like a trampled flower. Dorian, Dorian, don't leave me, she whispered. I am so sorry I didn't act well. I was thinking of you all the time. But I will try, indeed, I will try. It came so suddenly across me, my love for you. I think I should never have known it if you had not kissed me. If we had not kissed each other, kiss me again, my love. Don't go away from me. I couldn't bear it. Oh, don't go away from me. My brother. No, never mind. He didn't mean it. He was in jest. But you... Oh, can't you forgive me for tonight? I will work so hard and try to improve. Don't be cruel to me because I love you better than anything in the world. After all, it is only once that I have not pleased you. But you are quite right, Torian. I should have shown myself more of an artist. It was foolish of me. And yet I couldn't help it. Oh, don't leave me. Don't leave me. A fit of passionate sobbing choked her. She crouched on the floor like a wounded thing, and Dorian Gray, with his beautiful eyes, looked down at her, and his chiseled lips curled in exquisite disdain. There is always something ridiculous 
about the emotions of people whom one has ceased to love. Sybil Vane seemed to him to be absurdly melodramatic. Her tears and sobs annoyed him. I am going, he said at last, in his calm, clear voice. I don't wish to be unkind, but I can't see you again. You have disappointed me. She wept silently and made no answer, but crept nearer. Her little hands stretched blindly out and appeared to be seeking for him. He turned on his heel and left the room. In a few moments he was out of the theater. Where he went to, he hardly knew. He remembered wandering through dimly lit streets, past gaunt, black-shadowed archways and evil-looking houses. Women with hoarse voices and harsh laughter had called after him. Drunkards had reeled by, cursing and chattering to themselves like monstrous apes. He had seen grotesque children huddled upon doorsteps, and heard shrieks and oaths from gloomy courts. As the dawn was just breaking, he found himself close to Covent Garden. The darkness lifted, and flushed with faint fires, the sky hollowed itself into a perfect pearl. Huge carts filled with nodding lilies rumbled slowly down the polished street. The air was heavy with the perfume of the flowers, and their beauty seemed to bring him an anodyne for his pain. He followed into the market and watched the men unloading their wagons. A white-smocked carter offered him some cherries. He thanked him, wondered why he refused to accept any money for them, and began to eat them listlessly. They had been plucked at midnight, and the coldness of the moon had entered into them. A long, thin line of boys carrying crates of striped tulips and of yellow and red roses defiled in front of him, threading their way through the huge jade-green piles of vegetables. Under the portico, with its grey sun-bleached pillars, loitered a troop of draggled, bareheaded girls, waiting for the auction to be over. Others crowded round the swinging doors of the coffee-house in the piazza. The heavy cart-horses slipped and stamped upon the rough stones, shaking their bells and trappings. Some of the drivers were lying asleep on a pile of sacks. Iris-necked and pink-footed, the pigeons ran about picking up seeds. After a little while, he hailed a hansom and drove home. For a few moments, he loitered upon the doorstep, looking round at the silent square with its blank closed-shuttered windows and its staring blinds. The sky was pure opal now, and the roofs of the houses glistened like silver against it. From some chimney opposite, a thin wreath of smoke was rising. It curled 
a violet ribboned through the nacre-colored air. In the huge gilt Venetian lantern, spoil of some doge's barge that hung from the ceiling of the great oak-paneled hall of entrance, lights were still burning from three flickering jets. Thin blue petals of flame they seemed, rimmed with white fire. He turned them out, and having thrown his hat and cape on the table, passed through the library towards the door of his bedroom, a large octagonal chamber on the ground floor that, in his newborn feeling for luxury, he had just had decorated for himself, and hung with some curious Renaissance tapestries that had been discovered stored in a disused attic at Selby Royal. As he was turning the handle of the door, his eye fell upon the portrait Basil Hallward had painted of him. He started back as if in surprise. Then he went on into his own room, looking somewhat puzzled. After he had taken the buttonhole out of his coat, he seemed to hesitate. Finally, he came back, went over to the picture, and examined it. In the dim, arrested light that struggled through the cream-colored silk blinds, the face appeared to him to be a little changed. The expression looked different. One would have said that there was a touch of cruelty in the mouth. It was certainly strange. He turned round, and walking to the window, drew up the blind. The bright dawn flooded the room and swept the fantastic shadows into dusky corners, where they lay shuddering. But the strange expression that he had noticed in the face of the portrait seemed to linger there, to be more intensified even. The quivering, ardent sunlight showed him the lines of cruelty round the mouth as clearly as if he had been looking into a mirror after he had done some dreadful thing. He winced and, taking up from the table an oval glass framed in ivory cupids, one of Lord Henry's many presents to him, glanced hurriedly into its polished depths. No line like that warped his red lips. What did it mean? He rubbed his eyes and came close to the picture, and examined it again. There were no signs of any change when he looked into the actual painting, and yet there was no doubt that the whole expression had altered. It was not a mere fancy of his own. The thing was horribly apparent. He threw himself into a chair and began to think. Suddenly there flashed across his mind what he had said in Basil Hallward's studio the day the picture had been finished. Yes, he remembered it perfectly. He had uttered a mad wish that he himself might remain young, and the portrait grow old, that his own beauty might be untarnished, and the face on the canvas bear the burden of his passions and his sins, that the painted image 
might be seared with the lines of suffering and thought, and that he might keep all the delicate bloom and loveliness of his then just conscious boyhood. Surely his wish had not been fulfilled. Such things were impossible. It seemed monstrous even to think of them. And yet there was the picture before him with the touch of cruelty in the mouth. Cruelty. Had he been cruel? It was the girl's fault, not his. He had dreamed of her as a great artist, had given his love to her because he had thought her great. Then she had disappointed him. She had been shallow and unworthy. And yet, a feeling of infinite regret came over him as he thought of her lying at his feet, sobbing like a little child. He remembered with what callousness he had watched her. Why had he been made like that? Why had such a soul been given to him? But he had suffered also. During the three terrible hours that the play had lasted, he had lived centuries of pain, eon upon eon of torture. His life was well worth hers. She had marred him for a moment, if he had wounded her for an age. Besides, women were better suited to bear sorrow than men. They lived on their emotions. They only thought of their emotions. When they took lovers, it was merely to have someone with whom they could have scenes. Lord Henry had told him that, and Lord Henry knew what women were. Why should he trouble about Sybil Vane? She was nothing to him now. But the picture, what was he to say of that? It held the secret of his life and told his story. It had taught him to love his own beauty. Would it teach him to loathe his own soul? Would he ever look at it again? No. It was merely an illusion wrought on the troubled senses. The horrible night that he had passed had left phantoms behind it. Suddenly there had fallen upon his brain that tiny scarlet speck that makes men mad. The picture had not changed. It was folly to think so. Yet it was watching him. With its beautiful marred face and its cruel smile. Its bright hair gleamed in the early sunlight. Its blue eyes met his own. A sense of infinite pity, not for himself, but for the painted image of himself, came over him. It had altered already, and would alter more. Its gold would wither into grey. Its red and white roses would die. For every sin that he committed, a stain would bleck and wreck its fairness. But he would not sin. The picture, changed or unchanged, would be to him the visible emblem of conscience. He would resist temptation. 
he would not see Lord Henry any more. Would not, at any rate, listen to those subtle, poisonous theories that in Basil Halward's garden had first stirred within him the passion for impossible things. He would go back to Sybil Vane, make her amends, marry her, try to love her again. Yes, it was his duty to do so. She must have suffered more than he had. The fascination that she had exercised over him would return. They would be happy together. His life with her would be beautiful and pure. He got up from his chair and drew a large screen right in front of the portrait, shuddering as he glanced at it. How horrible, he murmured to himself, and he walked across the window and opened it. When he stepped out onto the grass, he drew a deep breath. The fresh morning air seemed to drive away all his somber passions. He thought only of Sybil. A faint echo of his love came back to him. He repeated her name over and over again. The birds that were singing in the dew-drenched garden seemed to be telling the flowers about her. <laughs>